global warming, it's a big deal. So let's talk about it. Welcome to Science Island, a deep dive into the world of scientific innovation and discovery. I'm Leah Hitchings, along with Grant Burningham, and on today's show, we'll be talking to Dr. Dan Feldman, climate change scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, about discoveries that are being made that could set the planet on a better path. You're listening to Science Island on KACRLP 96.1 FM. So Grant, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about climate change? Rising sea level. Mm-hmm. What else? Uh, diesel automobiles and coal plants. Right. And heat waves and ice sheets breaking off. Right. Polar bears. Yep, definitely polar bears. And I have to admit, another one of the huge things that I think about, and really the main thing that I think about, and I feel like there are others who are sort of in the same boat with this, are the political challenges and controversies that have become sort of bound up in this issue, whether or not, you know, the the facts are continuing to exist outside of a political realm. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. So this last week, I went to a science conference, and I spent all this time learning about treating cancer, and it really felt like we could cure cancer. Like, maybe in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, we'll, we'll be able to beat cancer. Mm. Doesn't feel that way with the climate. And it's not that there's not a lot of science going into it, because there is. It's that it's a political problem. It's a policy problem. That's not going to be some guy in a lab who fixes global warming. It's going to be a big change, and it's almost impossible to see anyone coming up with the political will to to make that happen. Yeah, it's sort of it's one of those things that is certainly not um, a one stop solution. The scientist that we'll be talking to later in the show, Dr. Dan Feldman, is a climate change scientist. And he alone, he's just one guy. He has tons of different projects that are looking at this problem from very different angles. So he has projects having to do with sea level rise, with measuring temperature change, with wildfires, with NASA projects. And he's just one scientist. So when you step back to look at all the different angles that we're trying to address the issue from, it can almost become so overwhelming. And I think that's part of the reason that people sort of shut down when you try to bring it up, is that it's just become this tangled mess of political sort of feelings and emotions. On my end, for sure, I'm sure some other people feel the same. So you and I both live at six or eight feet above sea level. Do you ever think about your house just getting covered? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The um the beach is not far away. Um and it's something that I think we are starting to talk about in maybe like a fifty year increment. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because we're approaching old age <laughs> ourselves. But like 50 years doesn't seem as long of a period of time as 
it used to for me. And so when we're talking about 50 years from now, your house is going to be underwater. It's like, well, you know, that is something very concrete and very frightening. I, I completely agree. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Dr. Feldman was because I was really curious about what it's like to be a climate change scientist right now, Um, sort of getting a handle on what they consider a victory and what they consider challenging. And so I'm glad that we got to delve into that a little bit. Does he take any federal money? Yes. Um, Some of the projects are for NASA um, and some other agencies um, sort of looming over our conversation was the fact, and it really is a fact for, for people working in this field, that the current presidential administration is not considered friendly toward what they are trying to accomplish. Um, I will say that's something that Dr. Feldman never said himself or articulated, and I would understand why that would be the case. But it also adds that layer of difficulty where I think every scientist is really trying to advocate for what they're working on and they're trying to get grants, they're trying to get money. Um, But climate scientists are having to scramble a little bit more. So I'm sure someone listening to this or lots of people listening to this probably don't believe in climate science at all or are doubtful about man's contribution What are your thoughts on that after talking to this doctor? So I think he really articulated it well in the sense that we can talk about whether it exists or doesn't exist, and we can talk about what it means in a political sphere, but the facts remain. The warming continues. It's a very measurable thing. Um, And scientists, I think, have a lot to lend to the cause and that they are just providing pure fact. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing this. Yeah, let's talk more about this with our guest for today's show. Dr. Daniel Feldman is an Earth Research Scientist in the Climate and Ecosystem Sciences Division at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Dr. Feldman, welcome to Science Island. Great. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Feldman, we've certainly been hearing a lot about climate change recently with massive hurricanes forming in the Caribbean and record-breaking wildfire seasons. From your perspective in the field, what is the current state of climate science? What are the sort of top priorities for you and your colleagues? So, the current state of climate science is at some level quite mature in that we understand the basic physics of why the climate system is warming. Um, It really is actually very similar to the physics that goes on in your microwave oven. Um, So um, I like to say that if you believe that your microwave oven heats up food and that you actually uh, believe in climate science. And the the challenges at play are really what are going to happen in the next uh, couple of decades. And uh, for for that, there's a couple of things that we are focused uh, intently on. Um, first is uh, trying to understand how the Earth system will react to uh, to this addition of energy. And the reason, you know, is that at a basic level, you could expect the temperatures to rise, but there are a lot of different um, other ways that the Earth system could react. Um, so we're seeing what may be some manifestations of that 
uh, with uh, you know with the wildfires and and with with these uh, these these uh, hurricanes that are going on, and so it's really this Earth system response that is is the frontier, um, and we can look at climate models, um, which are large computer programs that try to uh, try to uh, compute what will happen in the future. Um, they have a, a lot of different um, actual uh, mathematical equations in there to try to balance energy and momentum. And ultimately, as a field, it's important to recognize that we're going to hopefully uh, transition to um, something akin to the National Weather Service, which provides a forecast. Um, National Weather Service provides a forecast on a few hours to a couple weeks, and the goal here for our community is to be able to provide forecasts, you know, that are robust at six months, one year, five years, ten years, twenty years of the things that people care about for climate. So it's sort of cumulative. Um, have you found in your research that there are certain areas of the globe that are um, experiencing a faster rate of warming? Yes, um, and this gets to um, some of the, the, the real kickers here for, for climate change is that, um, that it is really not uniform here. We see that at the high latitudes, so in, in, the, in the Arctic, in northern Canada, in Siberia, in Alaska, in uh, Scandinavia, in the Arctic Ocean, uh, most in the most extreme sense this past year uh, year for sure um, there was a, much higher levels of warming so this this sort of extreme warming at the high latitudes is something we're still trying to understand there's some some basic um, physics that are likely contributing and then some some more subtle things that are also contributing so the first is that um, oftentimes referred to as the uh, snow or ice albedo feedback, and the idea there is that um, snow uh, and ice are very bright in at visible wavelengths. They reflect a lot of energy, uh, but ocean surfaces or unfrozen surfaces in general are are not nearly as bright. Uh, oceans are are re- only reflect a couple percent of the incoming uh, solar radiation, whereas ice could uh, could reflect uh, 50, 60. Uh, you know, snow can be even higher percentage. Um, and uh, and so if you melt the ice, you expose a darker surface, and that will absorb more energy from the sunlight and lead to um, ever-advancing warming. And this is often referred to as a, a positive feedback, um, which um, is, uh, you know, sometimes also referred to as a vicious cycle because positive feedback kind of sounds like it's a good thing. But uh, usually positive feedbacks, at least in the climate system, are actually a really bad thing. So... Um, more recently, I've been doing some work that um, shows that that there's actually another another um, type of feedback in them in the infrared that um, also uh, uh, contributes uh, pretty substantially to the warming that's uh, that the Arctic experiences in the winter time. Um, and so the issue in the Arctic is there's no sun in um, uh, in in the winter. Um, north of the Arctic Circle, it is completely dark for several months out of the year. Yet it is quite, it is much, much warmer than it has been um, during that time, and so it's, um, it's. They're still working on the, 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 um, the reasons for that. But one of them is has to do with the same, same type of physics that are operating in, um, as the snow albedo feedback in the infrared. So there's a lot of different 
different things that are going on. Um, but this does have sort of implications for, um, for example, Greenland, um, which has a, um, you know, some, the better part of a meter of sea level equivalent in it, uh, which means that if the whole thing melted, that, you know, your sea level would rise about a meter. Or so, um, so it's definitely something, um, something that we're, we're, we're really, really concerned about. And sea levels are another aspect of climate change. Do you expect to see levels rising uniformly around the world, or will it be sort of worse in some areas? The sea level rise um, is um, is definitely not uniform across the planet, and this arises uh, for a few reasons. But I guess I should um, start by saying that you know, sort of quantifying you know the types of sea level rise. There are uh, essentially two main types of sea level rise that um, have occurred. Um, one has to do with the melting of the the um, of glaciers and um, of ice sheets um, uh, in Greenland and to a lesser extent uh, mercifully now and uh, to a lesser extent in Antarctica so far. And then the other type has to do with the fact that the oceans are warming and so warm things expand and um and uh, and and so so the sea levels will just uh, will rise just due to that. And so far, that's been uh, on the order of a few millimeters, um, but but not not too bad. Now, it, but it is important to recognize that that this the sea level is um, is not uniform across the planet, nor is the rise um, uh, of sea level uniform across the planet. Um, the this arises for a couple reasons. First of all, the sea level not being uniform across the planet. Um, has to do with um, the fact that there are, first of all, the the Earth is not actually round. It's pretty close, but it's not quite there. Um, and for those who really want to nerd out, you can look up uh, what a geoid is, um, but that's the, the actual shape of the Earth, um, uh, and uh, which which and it's um, it's uh, how it differs from a sphere. Um, so that contributes to. Um, um, at some level, and also um, the uh, gradients in circulation and temperature um, in the oceans um, contribute to the um, non-uniformity of the of the sea level as it is currently. Now, now as it rises, um, there are a couple of different effects going on. Um, the first is again that those effects of the geoid, the fact that the the Earth's not exactly a sphere, and the other is actually has to do with uh, the gravitational, um, the the um, the non-uniformity of the gravitational field of the Earth. Um, so uh, the ice sheets, the ice sheet in, ice sheets in Antarctica, the ice sheet in um, in Greenland are extremely massive and. So they have uh, a gravitational pull associated with them, as does every bit of uh, mass on, um, in, on the planet, but they have a lot of it, and so they have essentially an outsized local gravitational pull. And so um, if you, uh, if you uh, drop some, some ice into, into the ocean from the, from the ice sheets, um, they um, will uh, not have as high a gravitational pull, um, the, those ice sheets, as they had before. Um, and this actually leads to a local drop near the ice sheets of the sea level, but uh, rise somewhere else. And that somewhere else um, turns out to be, regardless of whether or not it's Greenland or 
um, uh, or Antarctica, it has a few different maxima, but one of them is right across from uh, Washington, D.C. And so um, that is just something to, to consider um, for, for the future, is that, um, that there will be a, a local maximum of sea level rise um, near there. Now, um, it's from um, the perspective of, uh, of the, the size of the Earth, it's pretty small, um, but um, it uh, might be something that the people uh, there will want to consider because, um, you know, for, for flooding purposes, uh, um, you know, the, the difference of a few inches does matter quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So you would recommend that people who live in the Washington, D.C. area should maybe invest in flood insurance? Uh, I will defer to insurance adjusters on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but I certainly um, certainly can say that uh, the, the you know that that uh, dealing with the the rising waters is is a, is a challenge. And a reminder: if you're just tuning in, you're listening to KACRLP ninety six point one FM. And today on Science Island, we're talking to Dr. Dan Feldman, an Earth Research Scientist in the Climate Division at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. So, Dr. Feldman, your work also extends beyond the surface of the Earth and actually into space. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with NASA? Sure. So. NASA has uh, many different facets to it, and one of them is um, uh, in its science mission directorate, it, it, it studies Earth sciences. And so I have a couple of different projects um, with NASA um, to try to um, understand, um, first of all, the ways that we can, um, we can quantify uh, the changing climate from uh, a space-based perspective. I mentioned earlier that satellites can cover the entire globe very quickly, and, and they, they have have that um, that that great advantage over surface observations um, or even aircraft observations that you can essentially put one instrument into um, into orbit, either a low Earth orbit or a geostationary orbit, and you can um, you can observe a lot at the, at, uh, at one time, and so um, that's that's a, a quite advantageous, but there are some challenges to the space-based environment, the, uh, the first of which has to do with the fact that um, the space environment um, tends to degrade in your instrumentation um, very quickly. So um, uh, our, our, our satellite instruments last um, typically about as long as our our, our laptops in our offices last, um, and sometimes that you know that laptop, um, if you're able to, if you take care of it, um, it can even run for quite some time. You could get you know you can get ten years out of your laptop if you're careful with it. Although by the ten year mark, it kind of starts to be a little bit slow. Uh, I, th- I say that's a, about a right uh, the the right analogy for the satellite environment, um, and um, and so there are solar there's solar storms, there are cosmic rays, there are um, there's uh, contamination from um, a, a bunch of different particles in um, in space, um, and. You can kind of see this a little bit, or at least see how sensitive these instruments are. Um, uh, for the for those listeners who've ever seen pictures of the satellite instruments 
as they're before they're launched. Um, they can see a bunch of people dressed in um, uh, uh, clean room outfits. They're covered head to toe, um, and the reason for that is because they uh, people produce a lot of different uh, different particles, and those could damage the instruments. Um, and they're also covered in gold foil. Um, um, uh, typically, and that also is uh, the, the instruments are um, not the people, but the, the instruments are <laughs> um, to 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 protect them really. And um, and then once they're up there, um, they, they the instruments are are able to uh, to to be much uh, you know to to make their observations, but they are are really um, really quite sensitive. And so so we're we're working to design instruments that are able to manage in that environment and and and, and handle the potential long-term um, uh, challenges of observing the evolution of the Earth's climate system over over that uh, period of time. Sure, and you've also been working on designing wildfire prevention technologies. What does that research look like? So wildfires, we certainly experienced Many here in the state of California, in the Western United States, have been really quite extreme. These um, these are really um, quite destructive events, and they can happen in a moment's notice. We're actually um, trying to 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 look at how fires progress um, in um, in real time and model them. We uh, do a couple of things. Um, first of all, uh, very recently. Um, the uh, the uh, actually NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, launched a uh, with a bunch of other organizations, in, including NASA, um, launched um, something called uh, the GOES R instrument. Um, and this um, uh, this is a, a geostationary instrument that's always um, looking at uh, scanning across the United States, and it actually is able to look for fires. And so we can start at at the um, at the geostationary orbit view, which is about 30,000 miles away from the planet, um, planet surface, and we can look for where potentially fires are popping up um, every, you know, 15 or so minutes. And then um, the frontier now, at least for this research, is putting that into a something called a fire behavior model. Um, and the fire behavior model is essentially a weather prediction model, but it's one that recognizes that fire itself can affect weather and um mm-hmm. and this this is kind of a real real kicker here the the you know fires um sometimes just respond you know the wind is blowing in a certain direction and um the fire moves in that direction but when you have a certain you know certain sort of fuel mixture and a few certain sort of topography and um some other sort of um uh you know, a vertical variation in winds, you can get situations where the fire might just turn right around on you. Um, even if the general direction of the wind is going one way, the fire can produce enough heat essentially to push the fire back in the other direction. And so I have a lot of uh, um, pictures and examples of, of where the where the fire is moving in the exact opposite direction of the prevailing wind. Um, and and so, so that sort of situation you need to account for, which happens occasionally I should you know don't want to sort of make it sound like this is an all the time thing but it certainly can be it certainly can happen 
Um, well, it sounds like a lot of really fascinating research. What is it like to be a climate change scientist right now? Are there parts of your job that are maybe getting easier or getting harder? That is a great question, Leah. Um, and this is strictly speaking from from my perspective now. Um, you know, there are uh, lots of of challenges. Um, as, you know, certain certain um, certain organizations are um, are stepping back from from um, from their interest in climate science, and but others are are taking up the helm, and so. I think we're, you know, we that's something we certainly have to face, and it's something that's that is um, a little bit um, a, a little bit of a challenge. But at the same time, um, you know, I it's really important, and one of the things that motivates me on a, on a day to day basis is the fact that that this is an issue that 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 uh, that really is independent of. Um, what anyone thinks about it <laughs> it is uh, it is a is a physical um a physical process that's going on and i think it's really important to recognize that um that that um that uh that you know this is this is a basic question of the addition of energy and what what will happen to our our climate system and and so uh and and, and the other sort of aspect of that is that um, it's been very um, the, 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 the Earth's climate system has been actually very uh, gentle to us and nice to us in the last um, few uh, centuries. Um, I, we've um, not mercifully had to experience the, um, some of the challenges that um, uh, generations long in the past had to, had to deal with. Um, and, um, uh, you know, we, we, uh, so, so there are some sort of very dramatic examples, uh, in the, in, even in the historical record of things that, that we, um, that we, we really haven't had to face. And, um, and so, you know, so we're, uh, trying to, um, to at least, um, develop, uh, a, 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 the best understanding that we possibly can for our, um, our, our Earth systems so that we can provide information for for humanity to be able to address some of the challenges that um, may be coming down the, the pike. Um, I think some of them are we're, uh, a little bit committed to at this point. Uh, others, uh, really not so much. You know, this is uh, this is on the uh, couple of decade time frame. There's there's really uh, we can really make a very large difference. And that's a long way of saying. Um, there's, uh, we're kind of a, a bit, at a bit of a crossroad. Sure. Well, I'm sure you've um, motivated our listeners to sort of consider what's happening, not just in their backyards, but also what's happening around um, their planet. Uh, Dr. Feldman, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Thanks, Leah. It was my pleasure, and um, I hope that, uh, that uh, the audience pursues their interest in this if, if, as they, um, you know, read up more about it, um, try to try to learn, and and really um, try to understand our, you know, how we're contributing to the the solution as much as possible. That's it for today's show. If you're interested in learning more about climate change, check out climate.nasa.gov. There's a lot of fascinating stuff on there, and it's really just the tip of the iceberg. 
or should I say, melting iceberg. Uh, I'm the worst, signing off with a science pun. Grant's going to take away my microphone. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Leah Hitchings. Thank you to my esteemed colleague, Grant Burningham. And we have exciting news. This broadcast is now available as a podcast. Look for us on Apple iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe. We love subscribers. You can also check us out on Twitter at Sci Island. This has been Science Island on KACRLP 96.1 FM. We'll see you here next week.